We have a situation. The FBI says there's an escaped fugitive heading our way. Got a psychopath in a Batmobile. I'm not gonna let them come through town without a fight. Very nice. Who the hell are you? I'm the sheriff. The last band. Drive safely. Welcome to Podcast Action Hero, the show that's waiting in the kitchen when you get up at night for a glass of milk. Get to the chopper! I want to ask you a bunch of questions. Hey, Christmas tree! I want to have them answered immediately. I'm not a pervert! You son of a bitch! Hi, I'm Gavin. I'm Jamie. And this is the podcast where we basically talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger films for an hour. And in this episode, we are talking about 2013's The Last Stand. Jamie. Hello. What is your history with this film? I caught the first five minutes on Netflix, and in my mind, I caught the first half hour but no no didn't even get past the opening scene uh that's it really for me how about you (laughs) yeah it's this is one of those ones where it's because it's one of his more recent films you can't really talk about oh i i don't even remember the first time i saw this or i do remember the first time i saw it it was at half past 12 on, on a midnight because my parents had gone to sleep and i'd stayed up late to watch it when i shouldn't there's none of that there's not there's no kind of like background story to this one it's just I saw this a few years ago when it arrived on Netflix, and then I watched it again for this podcast, and that's it. Yeah, there's no kind of fanfare for it. I mean, it's, you'd think there would be, because it's his first film, his first full leading role after uh, his hiatus while he was governor. And I do wonder if uh, if some of that was down to, we've talked about in previous episodes, when he went to do The Sixth Day, mm. and he wasn't allowed to do very much action in that, right? Because he wasn't, he just had open heart surgery or some kind of heart surgery anyway and the insurance wouldn't wouldn't let him do very much action and so i do wonder maybe that was part of it it was i don't know well i mean he's doing more action in this than he was in the sixth day i think mm. so I, I don't know i think it just it was it feels like a smaller film it feels like he, he he's dipping his toe again rather than going fully uh you know it's not like a terminator he's not come back with a big film he's come back with this sort of let's just see how this goes yeah have us all got it i guess well I wonder how much of that is him and how much of that is the studio on behind. I think it was Lionsgate were behind this, right? Yeah. And so I wonder how much of that is them going, well, Arnold's been away for a few years and he's been away doing politics. And before he went into politics, his films weren't really doing that great. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder how much of it is, will people care that Arnold's back now? Is it like riding a bike? And if so, do we want that same bike? <laughs> <laughs> to refer to Arnold as a bike. <laughs> That's what they call him. The bike. <laughs> um, shall I attempt to sum this film up? Yes, please. Okay, so this is a Western, a, a neo-Western set in Arizona, in a small town called Summerton, which Arnold Schwarzenegger is the sheriff of, Sheriff Ray Owens. Uh, there's a drug dealer described as the, the worst one since... What's his name? I forgot Pablo his name. Escobar. Pablo Escobar. And he is called Gabriel Cortez. He's escaped, he's on the run, and he's making a break for the border uh, in a supercar. The FBI, headed by, in this case, Forrest Whitaker, hmm. 
chasing him, but they're kind of doing it from an office, just constantly on the phone to people, setting up roadblocks. In the meantime, he uh, Cortez's men are essentially building a bridge across a narrow canyon from Arizona to Mexico, so he can just get away on this car. And uh, Arnold and his deputies all have to stop him from getting through Somerton. And essentially, that's how it pans out. They do stop him. Ta-da! <laughs> yeah, pretty good. There's more to it, but it's uh, they're, they're the broad strokes. There's not much more to it, though. I think you're absolutely right. This is it is a neo western. It's it's kind of west. It's a western or a retooling of a of a western sort of genre film. Mm. In the same way that you've got films like uh, I don't know, Night of the Living Dead and Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and those kind of things are just basically like western tropes where you've got. I think I referred to. I heard that those kind of films referred to as like um, you know defending the tower or attack on the tower sort of films. Yeah, yeah. And and this is kind of like your very traditional like you know like you say you've got this small dust bowl sort of town where it's like everybody knows each other, everybody knows each other's name, and you've got this like the the idea is that it's a group of people who are not ready for the level of, of carnage that are coming their way. And then it's just it's a countdown film, isn't it? It's it's all yeah. Everything is is winding up towards this final sort of uh, this conflict there as well, which makes it weird that it's a countdown to essentially not what you think it is. Like the mm. the the big the kind of finale of like the the two forces meeting in the town doesn't involve the main bad guy. Mm-hmm. He kind of turns up and just drives through. I mean, you you could argue that. There is sort of two last stands. You've got the big shootout, mm-hmm. which is what you're kind of expecting, but the actual last stand itself is just those two on the bridge at the end, isn't it, having the fight? Do you know what? I don't even think about that scene because that scene feels like the bit that they had to tack on at the end. Mm. For context, for people who haven't seen it, I guess, there's the, it's a mobile assault bridge, they call it, Yeah. which I guess is just a thing that they build in the military because there's no guns or anything on it. It's a temporary metal bridge that they've built over this canyon. And Cortez... By the time he gets there, he's on foot because he's crashed his car, but also Arnold's crashed the car that he was chasing him in. Mm-hmm. And Arnold somehow manages to get ahead of him, and they have a big fight on this bridge. But the whole scene is very... It's the only time it looks very green screen. Yeah. Do you reckon the that was always the ending? Or do you reckon it was an alternative ending originally? Yeah, yeah, good question. You're absolutely right. Everything, for the most part, seems like it's... I was going to say on location. The entire town, to be fair, could be a set. It's... So it's, what is it, Summerton Junction or something like that? They call it Summerton Junction, but it's actually just called Summerton, I think. Maybe Junction's just a shorthand for a crossroads town or something. Because that's all it is, really, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's sort of four quarters of a town, and that's kind of it. It's like one main street that goes through it. Mm. And the idea is he's going to be going... That's the only road that's going to lead towards that junction, uh, towards the, yeah. Yeah, the bridge, rather. For the most part, everything is... Looks like it's on location, as it were. Even if the location is an outdoor set, it's it's there. But then, that, yeah, you're absolutely right. The very, very last scene uh, where they're fighting on the on the bridge, it reminds me of um, the uh, the final scene out of Revenge of the Sith, where yeah. you've got <laughs> uh, you've got Anakin and uh, an Obi and Kenobi sort of fighting each other, and it's so blatantly sort of all green screen and everything like that. It's, it had that sort of vibe to it. Yeah. All the lighting suddenly feels very different. Yeah, they're being lit from the wrong side or something. It just it just immediately just looks off, and it's a shame because for the rest of the film. That's one thing you could give it. Uh, I mean, I, I could give this film credit for quite a few things, I think. Mm-hmm. But one of the things is they do some good practical like stunts and stuff like the the, the way cars flip and explosions. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of them look practical. Mm. 
Yeah, it's a very practical film. And you know me, uh, you know, uh, listeners who uh, got our Raw Deal episode uh, where I talked in the, the opening scene about the 1980s sort of squib work, I was really happy to see some squibs returning it in this one. Like there was actual, when people were getting shot, you sort of felt the impact of it. And it looked like they would kind of enhanced some of those with some CGI pink mist and all that kind of stuff. Oh, there's a lot of mist. But for the most part, it looked like there were stunts were practical, the car chases are practical. Everything was pretty much bang on. Could you make this film the same but set it in like in the old west, like the, as a concept? Because other than like, there's a few phone calls, mm-hmm. but I think other than that, it still works, right? People building a bridge and someone riding a very very fast horse. Yeah, yeah, it still absolutely. works, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, you'd have a guy, for example, being transported from a jail to towards his execution. For example, he's gonna he's gonna be taken off to be hanged, and then he gets yeah. broken out of the uh, you know the the wagon chain or whatever you want to call it and then it's just him on like the fastest horse in the west or something heading towards (laughs) this tiny little yeah everything everything works and you say you know a few calls those telephones in western times wasn't there so Mm, i guess there was towards the end yeah so like late late 1800s early 1900s i guess center century telegram was around before the phone right yeah you're not wrong i only know that because three amigos (laughs) uh so yeah everything in this works if you swap the cars for the horses and all that kind of stuff, yeah. I think I almost think I would have preferred that, if I'm honest, because the, the side of this film that I don't like hmm. is it kind of feels like two episodes of TV smashed together. Like one of them is this small town that's having something's about to happen and they're getting prepared for it and then it hits. And then the other side is the Forrest Whitaker side of it, where it's just like CSI or something like that. <laughs> Everything's shiny and it's all filmed in blue in at night. It's got this very modern look to it and all the cars are shiny and everything's... Everything, I feel like it's meant to be contrasting city versus small town, like Dust Bowl kind of thing. Yeah. But I kind of don't know if the FBI side of things works that well. Yeah, I think that was the intention, was that it, it's these two worlds and you've got the sort of the shiny, sort of sterile city world of Forrest Whitaker and the FBI and, you know, the worst cartel member since Pablo Escobar heading towards this sleepy, you know, semi-rural town that just isn't ready for it. So it's like this sort of clashing of worlds, as it were. Uh, But no, I get what you're saying. And also one thing you mentioned earlier was that a lot of Forrest Whitaker's work takes place in an office and Mm -hmm. uh, he seems to be running an awful lot of this operation like a project manager. You know, he's the guy in the office and he's making a lot of phone calls and telling people, go here, go there. And there's only a few occasions where he actually gets on the ground. And I wonder how much of that was deliberate and how much of that was like a limitation of, look, we've only got Forrest for X amount of days on this one. He can be on location one time and then he can come to the studio for half a day. Exactly. We We can have him a day in the city chasing people in orange tracksuits we can have him in the desert, in the small town, towards the end, when he goes to arrest the guy. The rest of the time, he's on a nice, warm soundstage, mm-hmm. um, just doing his Forrest Whitaker thing. I feel like he was almost wasted in it. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of him anyway, because he's got this weird delivery sometimes. For the most part, I think he's okay in this film, but occasionally he does that weird Star Warsy delivery that he did in that <laughs> one. He puts a pause in the middle of his sentence for no reason. They put him in this a little bit too much, I think. I know what they're trying to do. They're contrasting, like we said, the slick operation against the scrappy, almost amateur, mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, these, these guys aren't qualified to do what they're doing in this town. 
But I feel like they focus way too much on Forrest Whitaker and the FBI in the first half of the film. It doesn't get going for quite a while. And it's there's an interrogation scene. Oh. They could just have cut completely. Yeah, because that's when they've got the guy in the Dutch national football team's yeah. uh, uniform tracksuit, hasn't he? He was one of the many decoys they used in Orange. So yeah. the FBI would be chasing the wrong person around the town. They could have just easily had, had a brief line in there saying, it's just guys in tracksuits, for example. They didn't really need the entire interrogation in there or anything like that. Yeah, a Forrest Whitaker man, he's... <sighs> His performances are like a box of chocolates, right? You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> Sometimes it just does something amazing, and then other times it's like, come on, man. It's like he was visiting his friend who works in the catering or something like that, and it's like, <laughs> oh, Forrest is uh, is in the back. Should we bring him in for... <laughs> just do me a favour, just write some lines down on these post-its, and uh, we'll, we'll get Mr. Whitaker in and uh, you know, just see if he'll do something. It's an eclectic cast, to say the least. Mm-hmm. You've got, um, I've always called him Peter Stormare, so I'm going to call him that. Well, I know it's Peter Stormare. Stormare, I think, yeah. You've got Harry Dean Stanton for one scene. Yeah. You've got Louise Guzman. R.I.P. Yeah. Jamie Alexander, I believe yep. is the name, the, the Sif in the Thor films. Yeah. But the one that sticks out, I'd say stands out more than Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a Arizona sheriff. Yeah. Is Johnny Knoxville. <laughs> Who's in a different film? <laughs> Johnny Knoxville is from another planet. Anything he's in, he's like... Because oh. they know what they're getting when they hire him. He doesn't do serious. Mm-hmm. He's just Johnny Knoxville. And now he's Johnny Knoxville in a conquistador hat. Helmet, not a hat. <laughs> <laughs> Shooting slabs of beef with a high-powered pistol. Yeah. And making lots of weird noises. It's He's just... I mean, I guess he's kind of fun. But he he contrasts so badly with like everything else that's going on. Yeah, and I think the whole idea of, especially with uh, Schwarzenegger's crew in that town, all those deputies, they are supposed to be this kind of ragtag group of mismatched sort of people, and you know, they, they, none of them make sense. No, but yeah, even in a group where none of them make sense, John and Knoxville in particular makes very little sense in there. Because right, if this film was made ten years earlier, if this film was made in two thousand and three not 2013, I'd get Johnny Knoxville being in it. Mm-hmm. Why is he still in these films? They're making Jackass 4. Oh, mate. He's got to be 60, right? Parts of him are. <laughs> <laughs> Some parts of him are six months. Did you mention uh, Luis Guzman as well? I did. He's a highlight. He's quite good in this film. He's great in everything, isn't he? He's, you know, I've never seen him in anything else. You've, you have. You've seen him in loads of stuff. You, oh, you forget, surely, that he's in stuff. Well, he's in Community for one episode. That's it. That's all I've seen. <laughs> and Xerxes from 300. Yeah, absolutely. As uh, as Jamie Alexander's on-again, off-again ex-boyfriend. Will they, won't they? Yes, they do. Uh, I don't know if you'd caught this, because it was, um, it was very subtle. Mm. But he served in the military. Did he? I'm not sure if they bring it up, that he was a good shot, and he, put, he, he served in... Iraq and Afghanistan, and he's he's got a, a tattoo on his on his forearm that says Semper Fi in papyrus font. <laughs> Come on, man! At least try. He's got another one on the other arm saying uh, "Don't tread on me," but that's in Comic Sans. <laughs> that's amazing. They were sort of dropping all these breadcrumbs, like, "All right, so he's ex-military. 
He's never really made anything of his life. He had all this potential, but he's never really lived up to it. He's, he's, a, he's like the, the local drunk now, isn't he, or something like that. Yeah, he's like petty crime. He's just, he's, we meet him, he's locked up in the cells overnight. Basically, he's in a drunk drunk tank, right? And they're dropping all these breadcrumbs to say, like, he's like a, this war vet, he's a hero, he's a great shot, he's all these kind of things. And it's like, okay, so clearly what's going to happen is when the <laughs> shit hits the fan, this guy is going to turn up and he's going to fucking kick ass. And he does not. It does a couple of bits and pieces, but like you think he's going to absolutely dominate that space at the end of it, but he doesn't really. He's very much no. like an, an assisting sort of part to the other characters. His big moments in a stairwell where him and Jamie Alexander are both shooting the same guy in the mm. chest. Is that a bonding moment? Is that is that them flirting? Yeah, because she immediately runs up and kisses him, and he's like, does this mean we're back together? And she's like, I think so. I've been doing it all wrong. That seems like it's one of those bits where... There has to be a romance, which I thought we were past at this point with action films. You know, the kind of shoehorn in a romance in there, a will-they-won't-they they thing. Yeah. It didn't need to be in there. Did you really need to have it? Especially, you know, if there's a female sort of character in here, does it have to be that she has some kind of relationship with one of the male characters? Yeah, in an action film, it feels like they, they have to justify the presence of any female character by having them be a love interest. They, they yeah. can't just be their own character. Yeah. Even though she comes close, she's got like a, a friendship with, uh, I keep wanting to call him Billy, he's called Jerry, isn't he? Jerry Bailey, mm-hmm. um, who's like the really inexperienced one. They're all inexperienced, but he's mm-hmm. like the, the rookie who just wants to get some action, man. He just wants to see some action somewhere. And from the moment he says that, you're like, oh, he's going to die. Yeah. Look, the fact that there's a lot of predictable stuff in this film doesn't lessen the fun when it actually happens. The payoffs are fairly good overall i think yeah there was there was nothing in here that i particularly thought that wasn't earned or anything like that everything that happened in it i was like you know what yeah that makes sense i get it in the context of this film so there's a couple more female characters that don't have a a love subplot to justify them but one of them christy who is uh uh, works in the diner the, mm-hmm. the diner's kind of like a, like the central hub for the remaining people who live in this town, essentially. like Most of them have gone off to like a football game somewhere in the next town, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And then the few that are left are like hanging out in this diner. And Christy, who went out to get milk, because it's normally delivered by the now deceased Harry Dean Stanton. She, so she's missing for all of this build-up. And she comes back when there's cars parked strategically blocking the road. And uh, Figgy, who is uh, Louise Guzman, mm. is ducking down behind a car while there's a load of heavily armed guys at the other end of the street. Now, if I came across that scene, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, oh, there's a guy I trust who's a deputy in the sheriff's department holding a gun and hiding behind a car. I should probably not be in sight right now. Yeah. But she spends the entire time going, what are you doing? Why, why, why have the cars parked like that? Why are you ducking behind a car? And then just get shot at. And that's how it kicks off. Like, all that tension. And she's the thing that lights the fuse. Yeah. It's a weird thing that they build up anyway. Uh, they're, they're building up and building up. And then there's, like, two payoffs. So, like, the first one is Peter Stomari's character with all the henchmen. Mm-hmm. they're there just to wipe everybody out basically clear a path for uh, Cortez to come through in his fastest car ever made that's where the film got good for me there's a couple of things I liked about this film it didn't stay really any longer than it needed to as such it was a, what an hour an hour and 40 you could argue they could have dropped 10 minutes like I say cutting out the interrogation scene cutting out some of the chasing people in tracks that entire segment could have been cut out and they could have just yeah. got straight to 
okay, he's broken out of the prison transport and now he's off and then he's driving away. I don't think they necessarily needed all that. But then again, I suppose they were trying to explain how, you know, this guy could slip out unnoticed from whatever. But I don't think they needed it. They could have just been like, he's just really connected and organised. That's how it happened. They were showing not telling, but it felt like they were telling because they were showing (laughs) all of it. Every step of the escape, which just dragged on. But other than that, I thought it was it pretty much carried on a good forward momentum for the entire thing. It didn't really stop. And what it reminded me of, nowhere near as serious, but I don't know if you've ever if you've ever read Truma Capote's In Cold Blood or if you've ever seen the film Capote with I think Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. You could have stopped that question. I don't know if you've ever read. The way the book's written, uh, sorry, the way that the at least the first sort of half of the book is written is it flips between these two points of view. One of them is the point of view of this family living on a farm, going about their sort of day-to-day lives and everything, and then it flips between them and these criminals who are travelling towards this town where they live. It's been a few years since I read it, but as I best recall it, the book flips chapter to chapter between the two viewpoints of what's going on with these characters. So it's like rising tension kind of thing. Yeah, and it's really effective. So gradually it's like, and you can see that it's all heading towards this point where something bad is going to happen. And it's like, you already know if you... I can't remember if they explicitly say at the start of the book what has happened. I can't remember. But you know what it's heading towards. And the way it's written is like, it's getting towards a singular point where something bad is going to happen. And so it's building up the characters up to that point. And that's kind of what this film felt like. It was, you had Gabriel, whatever his name, Cortez, was it? Cortez, yeah. So Cortez, uh, you know, he's driving down the uh, the highway in his high-speed vehicle and what have you. And then on the other side of it, you've then got Ray and the other sort of town villages and stuff just trying to get on with the best of their lives. So that sort of, like, build-up of tension, although it wasn't a massively tense film because it was fairly tongue-in-cheek for the most of it, I thought yeah. it did that quite well. The whole bit with Cortez, they, I, I get that they can't really do much else. Because the whole point of it is, he's like he's also a racing driver, right? As well as being like a drug lord. Yeah. A, he raced cars in his youth. And we find that out in a massive piece of exposition that's delivered oh, yeah. as a briefing to FBI agents. And the first thing, the first time he's telling these FBI agents about this guy is when they're ready to transport him. Like, there's no briefing before that, not in the days or weeks leading up to this right. really serious prison transport. It's kind of like, the reason I've gathered you all here today yeah, he says, uh, thanks thanks for coming so late at night or something like that, as if they've just been woken up. You've never heard of this guy, but he is the worst criminal since Pablo Escobar. Which, incidentally, he's telling that to all these FBI agents like they would never would have heard of him. When he mentions that name over the phone to Arnold Schwarzenegger, to, to Ray, he like, immediately knows who he's talking about. Yeah, he's like, I wish you'd told me that earlier, my, one of my guys wouldn't have died. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's also uh, another related thing to that that doesn't make sense. Essentially, we're getting the impression that none of these guys knew they were even on security detail until very recently. So mm-hmm. this is like, a, we've just announced that we're going to make the move now to catch them out or something like that. You know, like, on one hand, it makes sense that the not planning it out and in minute detail way, way ahead means there's less chance of anyone finding out about it. So, you know, you do it spur of the moment. And the bad guys haven't got a chance to mobilise and break him out of the van. Mm. But that happens anyway, which suggests that there's a leak, that someone is in on it. And Forrest Whitaker doesn't figure this out until way later. He's already in his supercar, he's already driving through blockades, and he's like, pull financials, I, want, I think someone is in on this in, in the department. <laughs> it's like, 
Of course they are. <laughs> you were driving through a city at night in an unmarked van and a lot of guys with zip lines already set up in the exact place where they need to be and a crane which magnetised the van and lifted it onto the roof of a, of a building. You don't do that unless you know in advance. This operation that apparently hardly anybody in the FBI actually knew about has nevertheless managed to be ruined through meticulously planned extraction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. you said, involves uh, helicopters, wires, race cars, trucks yeah. with plows on the front of them, people travelling several days in advance down to the right. fucking US-Mexico border. But your own agents are like, look, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> you're going to be busy for the next few hours it's one of those kind of plot contrivances i think where it's like he couldn't figure it out he's not allowed according to the story to figure out that um agent ellen richards she's called she's the one who's been paid off like three million or something like that and she's got to play hostage apparently they tried to take him down her partner was killed baby on the way huh and then shoots him in the head so she's she's playing the part of a hostage in this supercar She's got to be useful as a hostage until he gets the majority of the way towards Somerton or the film doesn't work because Mm. then they can just blow this thing up. So I've got a fan theory. My fan theory. Not something I've read. This is my own. My fan theory is that this is an unofficial sequel to Raw Deal. Oh, okay. This is him being the sheriff of a small town. For listeners to the previous episode, or, or you know, or even if you've seen Raw Deal, you may recall that Arnold's character in that one was a previously a tough inner city cop who had retired to be the sheriff in a small town, and and then was called back out of retirement to then go and take down this like you know mob family that had killed his old like friend or colleague's son. And I just like the idea that this is forty years later, and he's finally separated from his wife who hated him. <laughs> almost certainly cheated on him mm-hmm. because she was pregnant at the end of that film wasn't she and then it's like it definitely wasn't his but, but you've been away for months <laughs> <laughs> so i like the idea that now he's retired to another small town and because they actually refer in this film that he was a cop in la yeah when jerry keeps saying i want to go where the action is I want you to help me get a, a job as a cop in la and he's like la is not what you think it is and i'm thinking like I can't remember if Raw Deal was LA or New York or Chicago, was it? I can't remember. I like the idea that this is like an unofficial sequel to Raw Deal where you've got this guy who he's transferred again to another small town where he's trying to be the sheriff just to live his life quietly, away from all the violence, but he just can't get away from it. They just won't leave him alone. I do like that, actually. It feels like it could absolutely just... They could say that that's the case now, and you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, even if the character there's nothing stopping it. Even if the character's like got a different name, because he was called Kaminsky, wasn't he? In um, in yeah. Raw Deal, his character was called Kaminsky. This guy's called Ray Owen, and we've talked in previous episodes about how you, you can almost tell when this is a film that was not written for Schwarzenegger, mm-hmm. but he's making it his own, and it's usually the ones where he's got a very Anglo or like American-sounding name, and yeah. uh, nobody mentions the fact that he is this Austrian bodybuilder sort of person. The closest you get in this is Johnny Knoxville mentions, which I can fully imagine is just Knoxville completely ad-libbing, is going, hey, Ray, you've been working out, you're looking quite buff, or whatever he says to him, you're looking pretty ripped. Yeah. But other than that, nobody mentions it at all. He's called Ray Owens, but he later uh, identifies himself as an immigrant. Yeah, he says to Cortez at the end, you make us immigrants look bad or something like that? Yeah. Um, he wasn't apparently first choice for this film. 
and just tell me you can't see exactly what this film would be and we would never have watched it i reckon liam neeson uh i can definitely see it i can see liam neeson in this it's very much a liam neeson-esque film isn't it yeah definitely liam neeson is liam the neeson same guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing a coat again <laughs> taken in the deserts <laughs> I don't know at what point Schwarzenegger came on board. Probably could have done a bit of research on this. It would have been relatively interesting, but, you know. Do you think this film might possibly have been sponsored by Chevrolet? I don't know if it was necessarily sponsored, but it's definitely got uh, a relationship with the producer, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, because he was also the producer on Transformers, and Transformers use General Motors. Yeah. And I think General Motors is Chevrolet, right? Yes. And they gave him 14 cars uh-huh. for this film, and they returned two. <laughs> to be fair, you look at the state of the cars at the end of this film, they were never intended to stay in one piece. Can you imagine the person who's responsible for that, you know, the fleet of vehicles that lend into the film, and it's like, they don't see that in the contract, so it's like, there's 14 cars, so just bring them all back with full tanks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's just the guy, he's been working at budget all his life and he's just forgotten that that's not what happens here. They come back with just fuel tanks that are full and like, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of car destruction, right, the guy who's, I don't know, cars, the Chevrolet, the red one, belongs to the, the town mayor, apparently, yes. who at the beginning, there's a little bit of a kind of like a, a little bit of jocular kind of ribbing between him and Arnold. Mm-hmm. Basically saying that you're not coming to support the team kind of thing. And for some reason, Arnold just really gets the hunt with this guy. That red car, the red Chevy, parks that in a fire zone. Right, okay. So he parks it, like, he illegally parks it, but he thinks he can get away with it. But is that literally all the justification that we need to get on side with Arnold when he just destroys the guy's car and at the end chucks him his keys and goes, schmuck, and then walks off? So what happens, so the mayor turns up, he's parked it in a fire zone... The sheriff says to him, you parked it in a fire zone. And the, the, sort of, like, the message that the, the mayor is saying is, like, I'm the mayor, I can park wherever I want. You're just the sheriff, you do what I'm told, as I tell you. Uh, and then he clears off. At that point, under his breath, Schwarzenegger then says, schmuck, as he walks off, right? Mm. Then he takes the car, uses it, trashes it, parks it, the remains of the car back where he found it. And then the mayor's like, what happened to my car? And then that's when Schwarzenegger says, you shouldn't have parked it in a fire zone, or I told you not to park it in a fire zone throws his key, and then straight to his face goes, schmuck, and then walks back off into the diner. By the way, just as a brief aside, at the end of the film, when Schwarzenegger's been shot at, beaten up, he's fallen off a roof, he's been stabbed repeatedly and sliced with knives, he's been bandaged up, but then just goes into the diner. You know? <laughs> don't, worry about, don't worry about going to hospital to get like that massive knife wound in your leg, like maybe stitched up, maybe some antibiotics. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, because uh, like Figgy and uh, what's Johnny Knoxville's character called? Um, oh, he's he got a stupid name. Uh, Dinkum. He's called Dinkum. Yeah. Uh, they're both in the back of like an ambulance comparing wounds because mm-hmm. Figgy's had a big old chunk taken out of his shoulder with a shotgun or something or a high-powered rifle. Yeah, he gets shot with a rifle. I, like, I don't know, look like a fifty cal or something, but... But he's on, like, gas and air, or whatever it is. Like, it's probably not gas and air, is it? That's for pregnancy. But um, 
I don't know. It's for pain. Um, so they're, they're in the back of this thing. They're, they're injured. They go into hospital. But Arnold, who's without a doubt had the worst of all the injuries, he's just too much of a man. Yeah. He's got to go with his young friends into the diner, who are actually a couple and probably just want a bit of time to themselves. He's been stabbed. I don't think he actually gets shot. He does fall off the roof. And I think I mentioned this in a previous episode. My memory of this from when I first saw it was that he was out of commission for like 10 minutes or something. It wasn't. It was like a minute, if that wasn't it. But yeah, he's probably got some concussion. Mm-hmm. There's a part where he's been shot at and he jumps through the glass doors of the diner, lands on the floor. That's when Christie says, Ray, you've been shot. And he goes, oh no, it's just glass. Pulls a huge shard of glass out of his leg and then like mm-hmm. blood everywhere. And it's like, uh, that's going to need stitches. Then he gets yeah. the punch dagger whatever that Cortez has got at the end of it he gets that stuck in him yeah he's because he's like his shins and calves and stuff are slashed about four times and then he's stabbed in the side of the leg I think twice yeah his clothes are pink by the end of it you know he's covered in that much blood then it's just like yeah it's fine I do like the fact that when he gets stabbed in the leg with this knife and it's like up to the hilt, it's yeah. all the way in his leg and he pulls it out and stabs Cortez in the exact same part of the leg mm. and that totally immobilizes Cortez, yeah. even though Arnold's still standing. Do you just know better like where to stab a guy or is it just that you're Arnold? Well, he's, he's Arnold. He's got like six inches of muscle before it even gets anywhere near his bone, so he's okay, whereas the other guy is just kind of like straight into his marrow. That's true. <laughs> Felt every bit of it. If you're that comparatively weak, why take him on? I don't know. Why not just run? Clearly, you're going to run faster than Arnold. When he first arrives at the bridge at the end, he has to get past Arnold. And then at one point during the scuffle, he's past him. He's on the other side of him. Mm -hmm. Unless they got the 180 rule wrong with the cameras or something like that, which I don't think they did. The framing was pretty good on the fight. He's on the other side. It's like, just turn and run. Maybe he could have just been shot in the back, but I don't think that's a thing that Ray would have done. It's quite a wide bridge for, you know, like you could, all you got to do is just wrong foot him. Just like faint going to the left, roll to the right. It's like the last bit of the Eliminator in Gladiators, if you remember that in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to get past that last Gladiator. <laughs> but instead, what actually happens is Arnold seems to, he looks like he breaks his back. Yeah, he, he suplexes he, him or something, doesn't he? Yeah, suplexes him onto like a really thin but rigid piece of metal on the edge of the bridge. And I was like, oh, that's it. He's done. Yep. Nope, gets back up. I could have done without that last fight because I think the, the car chase that precedes it going through the cornfields is really good. No, I agree. Because there's the bit where, I think, to be fair, it's Schwarzenegger's car drives into the harvester or something like that, is it? Yeah. Well, they, well, both, they, both, they both do, don't they? Yeah, Cortez crashes into it and Arnold's car's decapitated by it. Yeah, you, you could have finished at that point. You could have had it there. He drags him out of the car, takes him back to you know, the village at that point. Yeah, the fight didn't necessarily need... But I I don't know, I quite like the fight. The bit I don't agree with towards the fight at the end is where Schwarzenegger gets offered, first of all, 5 million, then 10 million. Then when he's basically beaten Cortez, Cortez is like, okay, okay, 20 million. I would have gone, okay, do it. Get your banker on the phone, transfer that money, and then I'll have thrown him off the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Because then what? He's, he's, He's gone. And now you've got 20 million. It does make you think, after these kind of films, as standard, does every protagonist and side character on the good guy side have some kind of financial audit where it's like, did you agree to take money but then double-cross them? Because like you say, that could have happened and they wouldn't have known. Then again, as um, as Forrest Whitaker says at the end to Agent Ellen, a Swiss bank account's out as secret as they used to be. That's true. 
So this is after he's just gone. Uh, when she says something like, I, I'm okay, I'm okay. He's like, I'm very glad because now I have the pleasure of arresting you myself. <laughs> it's, it's one sentence, Forrest. Was it Malcolm in the Middle where like one of his mates was the <laughs> was, was the asthmatic kid in the wheelchair or whatever? <laughs> oh my God. It's that same kid, he's like, you maybe no, jump an octave. <laughs> he's got no lung capacity. That's what it is. He's had to walk. He should have been on some like gas and air. I genuinely get uncomfortable when people are out of breath on on camera. <laughs> There's like moments in films where they'll, they'll someone will take like a deep breath in, but then they'll have just cut the audio so they don't breathe out. And I'm like going, "Come on, come on! You're still holding that breath." <laughs> or like if someone goes underwater, I genuinely don't realize I haven't breathed for the entire time until I suddenly go. I feel a bit woozy. Ultimate empathy. Yeah. Jamie's dead. How did he die? He drowned. Oh my God, what, in a lake? No, just in his front room on his couch watching TV. (laughs) (laughs) Are you still watching the Poseidon adventure? No, I'm dead. (laughs) Wow. We haven't really spoken much about Peter Stormari. Oh yeah, the guy at the start when he comes into it and he's like, there's no way he's playing a baddie. That guy who only ever plays baddies. Oh, yeah. And he's really early on in the film, you see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sheriff Owens has gone into the diner, and he's done that typical thing of a diner in a film where you go in, you order something, and then you walk out before you've even touched it. Mm-hmm. Because these two guys, Thomas Burrell, he's called, and the other guy is credited as Ponytail, even though he doesn't have a ponytail. That's one of those nicknames, isn't it? Well, why is he called Ponytail? He do not have a ponytail. Like, have you ever heard that word? Do you think it's intentional? No, not at all. But I like the idea of. um, I remember listening to the Ricky Gervais podcast one time where uh, Carl Pilkins is talking about like one of his dad's mates was called like Dan the Hat. And I was like, why was he called that? Because he never wore a hat. Amazing. But yeah, they're. they're, they're, uh, Burrell and Ponytail are just having a conversation in a booth in the diner, Mm. talking relatively loud about the plans, I think. Arnold pegs it as dodgy immediately Mm. because. He's like, I've seen you in Fargo. And you're wearing a proper, just a kind of like leather waistcoat that like only bad guys wear. Yeah. You know, bounces at strip clubs. (laughs) (laughs) He's a good character, but I think that's a weak intro to him. His actual next scene, I think it's his next scene where... They go to the farm, yeah. It's him versus Harry Dean Stanton. Because they're just trying to buy his land off so they can put this bridge across the canyon, right? That's all they're there for. And he refuses to sell, so they shoot him in the head. He's a good bad guy at this point. He's like he's, he's standard. He's fairly standard for this kind of film, but he's effective. He's got screen presence, where I don't think Cortez really does. He's the man with no name, almost. In, he's like the villain from a Western, where he's Yul Brynner. You know, he's like Yul Brynner in Westworld, for example. He's mm. He doesn't need a name or anything like that. He's just this... This force that is coming, he is this thing, and it's... He's the um, the law guys in uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Exactly right. But in regards to Peter Stamari, yeah, I think the, the whole Diana scene, again, and we were talking about things that could cut this down to an hour and 30 instead of an hour and 40, you'd save yourself two or three minutes in that one because you can get rid of his introduction there. The fact that Arnold is concerned about this guy doesn't really matter or anything like that. No, because he gives the order to uh, Bailey to run the plates, and Bailey runs the plates and comes back and goes, yeah, the check's out, no priors. Yeah, there's nothing there. Oh, okay then. 
and it's an excuse to get into the house to have a conversation about wanting to leave for LA. But you could have done that somewhere else. That doesn't, it didn't need to happen like that. Yeah, that could have just been like the drive back from when they're shooting the meats. Oh, God. Fucking Dinkus's place or whatever. Yeah, and, and to your point, I think the, the introduction then of Peter Stamari's character, where it's turning up at the farm. Yeah, he could have just still been the creepy guy that he was, but then actually potentially trying to become across as a nice guy, but then still results in the death of uh, Harry Dean Stanton's farmer. If you had that introduction, and then Chris is saying the milk hasn't arrived, which is then Ray going, okay, well, I'll look into it, then all that makes sense. And then that could be the thing that starts to snowball that kind of thing. So yeah, the mm. the introduction and the dying, it was just kind of like the character that Stamari is playing is stupid and mm-hmm. just doesn't get how obvious he's being that he's a bad guy. Or he's so hyper-confident. He's got such hubris about the power that he's got because of Cortez and he knows what's coming that he doesn't even care if this small-town sheriff at that point has a concerned feeling about it because he's like, there is nothing these people can do to put a spanner in the works of what we do. That's actually a good point, and that's probably what was intended because essentially that's the theme of the film, isn't it? Underestimate small-town law. Mm -hmm. It's kind of proven right as well because Arnold and Forrest Whitaker's relationship in this film is what it comes to is Ray Owens constantly puts the phone down on. Yeah. I can't keep calling him Forrest Whitaker. His real name, his, his character name is John Bannister. Right. But I'll probably, I'll probably just call him Forrest Whitaker again anyway. But he keeps hanging up on him when like the FBI is like, this really dangerous guy is coming to your town. And he's like, oh, I'm busy. He puts the phone down on him. <laughs> Twice. Also, he just doesn't take Arnold seriously when Arnold reports the bridge mm-hmm. being built. He's like, I'm, I've been down there, I've seen it, we've had a firefight, one of my guys has been shot dead. And Forrest Whitaker's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, it can't be what you think it is. Yeah, it's about an hour and ten minutes into the film where they look at satellite images and it's like, this is live feed and there is a bridge. Why would you not believe when a sheriff just says, we were in a firefight and I saw the bridge? So they know that Cortez is going down there. They know it's highly likely that he's going to go through this town, right? They have got no idea how he plans to get across the border. And then a sheriff calls up and says, hey, there's a bridge across this border. And Forrest Whitaker's like, no, nah, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you think you saw, mate, but it's not a bridge. And like I said, until his mate comes along and goes, photograph of a bridge here, Forrest. And he's like, holy shit, who'd have guessed? Who'd have guessed me, Forrest Whitaker, getting something wrong? I never knew that there would be... He's also a little bit like um, Miles Bennett Dyson in Terminator 2 when he's been shot by the SWAT team, where he's like, I don't know much longer I can hold this. One thing I thought was really well done from an acting standpoint, which I didn't think I'd say, Hmm. is Jerry Bailey's death scene. Mm -hmm. I didn't rate him when he was in Midnight Mass. I thought he was a really poor actor, but he's quite good in this as like this nervous newbie kind of guy who's just... He thinks he's destined for more and gets a little bit overconfident and gets like shot multiple times. Ray kind of turns up in his truck and just goes full Terminator, really, doesn't he? He's got like the shotgun. He's just doing a lot of uh, shotgun out the window, squelchy death moments. Yep. But then in the back of the truck, I think they're going back to the, the sheriff's office, right? I think they went to a clinic. I don't think they have a hospital. They're so far away from like a major city. They don't. I think they've just got like a clinic. I guess so, yeah. But by the time they even get to the clinic, he's dead. Yeah, but I, th- I think it's really well handled because I think it's well acted by Zach Guilford. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cliches when there's a dying character on screen, you know, the, the whole looking up into their eyes and someone's cradling the head and they're kind of doing that here, but mm. she's mostly trying to put pressure on the wound to kind of stop the bleeding. And she does actually say, you're still bleeding. <laughs> it's like, yeah, five minutes ago he was shot with a Glock, but he dies off camera. 
they don't do the the lights fading from his eyes kind of cliche sort of stuff. It's just they do an outside shot and then when they get there, it's just like Arnold turns around and he's gone. Yeah, he's just like slips away. Yeah, I think that's really well done because mm. that's more like in a frantic situation you wouldn't suddenly go calm and allow this guy to die. He'd just die. Mm-hmm. Bit morbid, but I, <laughs> I thought that was one of the better parts of the film. This entire film really is kind of a bit by the numbers, and you need that because that's like the instigating moment to really get sort of Schwarzenegger going, where he's kind of like it's not just now a defender; it's now a revenge film, isn't it? That's uh, mm. that's his sort of uh, call to action, I suppose, of his uh, his hero journey, right? He was resisting, or he, he was resisting the call, but this is the point where he's taking on answering the call, right? I think it's interesting though that they give a little bit of screen time to the the idea of not getting involved. Oh, Louise Guzman saying like we could just look through the way. Yeah, he's just like, look, all we've got to do is turn our backs for ten minutes. We can just act like this isn't happening. And Arnold's like, it's terrifying. If you if you want to do that, I won't hold it against you. But I can't. He definitely would though, because that's a that's like a proper moral compass moment, isn't it? It's like you can say I wouldn't hold it against you, but then you've got to like work with this person who has already demonstrated that when the chips are down. Mm. Understandably, I'm not going to say like I would probably be exactly the same as Louis Guzman. In fact, I would have already gone <laughs> in that situation. <laughs> They're functioning essentially like security guards like the first time we meet louise guzman and zach guilford's characters they're they're hanging out with johnny knoxville shooting a side of beef with a high-powered pistol because they've got nothing better to do Mm. they've got no work jamie alexander is like hanging out back at the the sheriff's office flirting with the boyfriend but like she's the only one actually working Mm -hmm. everyone else is just like dossing it's arnold's day off so he doesn't even need to be like their entire force is three people yeah the fact that they don't paint the idea of not getting involved as cowardly is kind of interesting and it tracks as well because the idea is that the fbi was sending the swat team right they were supposed to be sending people there to deal with this and Mm. take care of it for them and so they were told to mind their own business, just stay out of the way and let the big authorities deal with it. Uh, what I thought was interesting was, I think it's later on in the film, to be fair, you start to find out a little bit more about who Schwarzenegger is when Forrest Whitaker keeps wondering, like, who is this dickhead who keeps hanging up on me and, <laughs> uh, and won't, basically won't do as he's told. Because even Schwarzenegger says at one point, like, I don't know you, I don't like you and I don't answer to you or something like that. He says, yeah. doesn't he? And then he hangs up on him again. Around about that point, they then they pull the file on Ray Owens to find out about him, and it used to be in this like elite squad in the LAPD, and brought down like some drug cartel there or something like that. Uh, and he he lost quite a few members of his team in some shootout, and even he caught I think they say he caught five slugs or something like that. And then that's mm. when he then retired to the thing. So that would be the point where you would understand then if Schwarzenegger was like, I, I don't want my people to face this shit because I've already lost people before getting involved with this kind of stuff. But he's like, no, he's the one who's like, I don't care, we're still getting into this because this is who I am, this is what I do. I think he's played this kind of character a few times, like a guy who has been through it, has tried to kind of have an easier life and has had been forced to go, but it's kind of cliched to this point, really, isn't it? It's, like- it's such an action movie trope, isn't it? Not just, I mean, yeah, you've got SWAT team, you've got, you've got Commando is the same, you've got Sixth Day is the same, and it's the same with, again, Liam Neeson, for example, in like all of the Taken films. It's like he's retired, he's settling down, he's supposed to be a family man, but no, 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 his people have got a call on him back and he's got to use a certain set of skills and all these kind of things, do you know what I mean? It's... Mm. So it's it's pretty common, not just with Schwarzenegger films, but with action films in general. It's the guy who's he doesn't want to have to use those skills, but he's gonna have to if he wants to save the insert, whatever. You know, you were talking about how Chevrolet's definitely got 
it must have sponsorship in this one because like all the cars pretty much are Chevys. When they had the shootout, they call out the gun that Jerry is shot with is a Glock and they name check it, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder how sponsorship works for guns in films as well because that is a gun that is used to shoot a cop. And you know how, I think you mentioned in one of the previous episodes that bad guys can't use Apple phones, for example, like that. That's part of like, yeah. because Apple never used to do any sponsorship, did they? They always used to have to like cover up the Apple logo if they had yeah. like an Apple Mac or a laptop or something in a film or a TV show, they'd cover up the logo somehow. And they've, they've stopped doing that now, so they do do sponsorship, but they do have these strict brand controls on them where it's like, the bad guy can't use an Apple phone, so they have to use an Android. What about guns? Like, are Glock cool that their brand is being used to execute cops? Is there any particular gun brand that are going to be saying, well, we don't want you to use our gun brand to shoot cops. You can only shoot bad guys with... Maybe it works the other way. Maybe it's like the lowest bidder is the, <laughs> is the company that we're going to use to shoot a cop. It's like the punishment for not trying hard enough. But eventually that ends up being like a race to the bottom, right? Where eventually the bad guys have all just got super soakers. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how we're going to clean up Hollywood for uh, violence-wise. It's just everyone just gets nerfed. Great. I'd watch that. <laughs> what did you think of Arnold's performance in this film? I mean, we've been slagging off Forrest Whitaker's performance, but Schwarzenegger's is the same across most of his films where it's like oh, of you, course, yeah. you never quite know what you're going to get. But... We've also talked about, and again, we'll use the example of uh, Stay Hungry as being like a real sort of surprise breakout, uh, really good performance from him. And Conan. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was great in that, considering like, he, you know, he didn't really have that much to, uh, to work with. And even like the way that his character deals with trauma in Collateral Damage and also in Maggie as well, mm. he's got some pretty good actual. In this, fine. But then you look at what he's got to work with. I think he made the best out of what he had. He's not got the opportunity to deliver many sort of iconic lines. So he's not that cartoony version of Arnold. No, he's bringing the Denzel in this performance. He's the guy who knows a little bit more than everyone else. He knows a fucking lot more than Forrest Whitaker, somehow. (laughs) Um, And the entire FBI. To use a pun, he's not really doing very much heavy lifting in terms of emotional scenes. No, that's true. This one. There's a few points where he could emote a little more mm. and he doesn't necessarily do it. You could also argue that first time back as a doing a full film, because he obviously did Expendables 1 and 2 by this point, that most he'd done was Expendables 2. So this was like almost like a, a litmus test for him. Mm. You couldn't fault him for being a bit rusty. I kind of get what you're saying, but I also don't really think it was in the script really for the emotional stuff. The way the film is kind of weighted, it's definitely more towards the comedy aspects. And I'll give you the example. You've got the bit where uh, Schwarzenegger is, is walking past one of the houses, I guess. Or is it a shop? I'm not too sure. Where you've got the old lady kind of sat in there. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the hitmen walks past her. He says something to her like, just stay out of the way, old lady. Don't worry about it. Like, he doesn't even pay attention to her. He goes to shoot Ray through the window. And the next thing, there's a she pulls out like, it's like a revolver, but with a long barrel and a stock on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and blows him through the window. And then he's like, I can't remember what the character's name was, but like, Mrs. Peenman. And she's like going, I, I shot him, Ray. And he's like, much obliged. Yeah. <laughs> Go get him, Ray. And it's the most like random oh, thing. Yeah. She's clearly never acted before. Oh. <laughs> because that delivery is just your granny's bun set for a day as a treat. There's more of that in the film than there is of the, oh no, my deputy has died. It's a weird mix and it doesn't always sit right. If we've got a theme through all of these shows that we've done. It's that the tone is often quite varied in a lot of these films. And I don't think it quite settles here. Mm. 
Yeah, and well, you mentioned earlier about John in Oxville seems like he's in a different film. I think Forrest Whitaker also seems like he's in a different film as well. And then Arnold's just in, out of all of them, he matches the tone best. Yeah. Like you say, you can drop Arnold into a film where he's playing a sheriff in a small American town with a name like Ray Owens that, again, nobody questions who he is, what he does. Or maybe the maybe the idea is they've questioned all that stuff kind of years ago, whatever. But in the situation, he is not the one who stands out as being out of place. It's Johnny Knoxville. Yeah. So there's something to be said for that. Have we covered Johnny Knoxville as much as we can? I think we've covered him too much already. There's a scene in it where he's trying to block the, the road with by cutting down a telegraph pole, mm-hmm. but it's connected by a, a wire to a wall. Mm-hmm. So he's just going at it with a chainsaw and it only falls like to 45 degrees, so he climbs up it and then it all falls down. And it's done like something from like an Adam Sandler movie or like Paulie Shore or something like that. It's just this madcap 90s out-and-out comedy. Well, it seems like that would have been John Knoxville on set going, I really feel like I could do something like falling from a great height onto the ground. Is there any, any way I can do that? And they're like, oh, you can probably climb up that pole and fall off it. I don't know. It's, it's like you've got to have John Knoxville in it. Or if you're going to have John Knoxville in it, he needs to get hurt at some point. Yeah, I don't feel like it's a film unless I end up pissing blood. And yet the thing is, his character Dinkus, as ridiculous as he is, he's kind of central to it. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's Dinkum, but Dinkus sounds better. Yeah, Dinkus, whatever. <laughs> Dinkum. <laughs> his character is central to it because they need his museum for the weapons, don't they? Like, I think the idea yeah. is he's like a southern sort of gun nut and his excuse, his permit for having all these guns is because he's got a museum. So he's kind of got a museum for two purposes. One, because he wants to collect loads of like, old weapons that he otherwise wouldn't be allowed to have, and also for tax purposes. It's like a tax dodge as well. Because he even says to Ray towards the start of it, he's like, like even Ray, as the sheriff, he doesn't even know this place was a museum. He's like, this is a museum? And he goes, yeah, it's open on the second Thursday of every month. It's like one day. Yeah, for like two hours. Yeah. <laughs> Just enough. Yeah. He's like, bring the kids or something like that. But he's also he's got swords and stuff as well. And like I say, he's wearing a conquistador helmet towards the end, which when they're trying to sneak him out when he's been injured, they're trying to sneak him across the road without them all getting shot. Yeah. And they're just dragging this hollow metal helmet across the gravel. <laughs> like, pick it up, guys. So yeah, that's enough about Johnny Oxville. Yeah. What we haven't mentioned, I guess, is the um, him taking the SWAT teams down in his car mm. when he does a, a weird sort of... There's two SWAT vans driving down both lanes of the highway mm-hmm. and he weaves between them pulls his handbrake on, swivels round so he's reversing at the same rate that they're driving, yep. then slams the brakes on so one of the SWAT team's vans just drives up his bonnet, or hood, I guess, yep. and crashes into the other one. Yep. And immediately that's it, just takes out two SWAT team vans just like that. Because they're driving like 4x4s or something like that. They're driving like Jeeps or something big. Not quite Humvees, but the big sort of tactical vehicles that they're driving. Mm. And I love the idea that like this huge three-ton vehicle, when it hit the sports car, would jump off it like a ramp and not just plough straight through its most likely carbon fibre body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a few little logical leaps there. Is it death proof where, uh, where the car crashes and the tyre goes straight through the windscreen and smashes somebody's head to pieces? I, I can imagine that being the case. Yeah, rips the, the skin off the face. Yeah, it's yeah. Like that, I think in reality that's what happened. The, the 4x4 would just tear straight through that car, immediately flatten anybody who's inside of it, and then the film would be over. It would be a shorter film and not quite as entertaining. One thing I've realised is I feel like this would be quite an interesting exercise 
if you were going to write a film like this you could almost like take this and just see how much you could like move around or redo or cut out mm. and just like streamline it a bit and level it out a bit move you know move a few characters replace a few characters because i feel like it's got potential that it's not lived up to but that doesn't mean it's not fun well maybe if they do that's when they can turn it into an actual western in oldie times maybe imagine if arnold was in an actual western well there is one film that we have yet to pull up from the wheel of pain where he is in a western okay in that case, I reckon we should probably do our uh, our ratings and then get to that Wheel of Pain so we can maybe... <laughs> Fingers crossed we'll get it. Yeah. If it comes out of the Wheel of Pain now, it's such a cheat. Yeah. Hopefully, like, listeners know and trust us by this point that when we pull a film from the Wheel of Pain, it is random. You know, we are using a random selector on this one. We're not just picking our favourite. Hopefully, the run of shit films that we had. <laughs> yeah. Do you think if we'd, uh, if we'd been planning this, do you think we'd have not put one more Terminator in by halfway through the entire <laughs> filmography? All right, yeah, let's rate this thing. So for first-time listeners, uh, when we rate these films, we do it on a binary rating system with some nuance. If we think that you should watch the film, we will say, do it now. And if we think you should not watch this film, we will say, put the cookie down. And then we'll yarn on for a minute or two as to why we've chosen that particular rating. Uh, so, Jamie, for 2013's The Last Stand, do you say do it now or put the cookie down? Um, I expected this to be a put the cookie down. Didn't really appeal all that much. It looked a bit like not my kind of thing. I found that by the end of it, I was really enjoying it. Mm. Just accepting it for what it was rather than wishing it was something different. And then I watched it again the second second time flew by absolutely flew by and i enjoyed every second of it so um it's clearly not like a masterpiece or anything like that but it's definitely a do it now for me it's relatively well made it feels like a good tv show episode premium tv kind mm-hmm. of cinematography kind of thing it's also the first first film by south korean uh, first american film by a south korean director kim ji woo mm-hmm. which we've not mentioned yet so i just thought i'd bring it up if you go into it with not necessarily no preconceptions, but like if you can just put aside what you might want it to be and just accept it for what it is, which is a bit messy, but it makes sense from start to finish. It's a simple story. You know what you're there for. You're there for characters doing stupid stuff at the end. And the fact that it's structured in a way that builds and builds until you get that. And then a bonus car chase and a bonus fight on the bridge. Yeah, it, it's fun. I would probably watch this again, to be quite honest. It wouldn't be a purchase, but I'd definitely watch it as long as it's on Netflix. Uh, that's about all I've got to say, really. How about yourself? Uh, yeah, so pretty much the same for me, really. Do it now. This is, like I say, it wouldn't be a purchase for me. This isn't one of these where I was like, oh, I wish I'd gone to see this at the cinema. This is this is like a, a streaming film. You know, it's perfect mm. for what it is. So we watched it on Netflix. Uh, here in the UK, so whatever platform it's on, if you can watch it for free, do so. Or if it's, you know, maybe it's a couple of pounds or a couple of dollars or something like that, then it's, you know, it's maybe worth paying that, but I wouldn't buy it or anything like that. Mm. We talked about how you could probably cut a couple of scenes out to save 10 minutes of the runtime, but other than that, it's still a pretty lean film. It knows exactly what it's doing, and, and the, the theme that's in it of, like, it's almost like this one road where Cortez is racing down, he's going this one road to one location, it's like the film is almost run like that. It's kept to this one central sort of like plot theme. It doesn't really drift off too far from that central mm. point in the same way the film doesn't really drift off from that one road that it's all going down. 
And so even though it's, you know, like I say, you could, you could probably strip out 10 minutes or so from the runtime, it's still pretty lean. And think about if this was a Michael Bay film, it'd be two and a half hours mm-hmm. of all sorts of mad random shit going on. So compared to that, this is like pretty much a masterpiece. <laughs> so I mean, if you want to kill an hour and 40 minutes uh, on a Friday or a Saturday night, if you're looking for something lighthearted to wind down with after a tough week, watch this. This is good. It's definitely far from the worst of the Schwarzenegger films that we've watched for this podcast. I'd say top half. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Uh, so yeah, really happy for me. Uh, do it now. And uh, I'm quite confident to give that recommendation too. Well then. It's time to find out whether we're going to be watching a Western <laughs> or one of the familiar ones that we've not seen yet, or just some crap. Yeah, let's uh, spin the Wheel of Pain. The film that we're going to be watching and talking about next time is... <laughs> Killing Gunther. I knew it was going to be Killing Gunther. <laughs> I don't know why. It's the film I expected you to say. I was listening to a podcast that mentioned it the other day, and they said, it's a good film. And I thought, I'll have to listen to more of what you think is a good film before I believe it. <laughs> because it doesn't look great, but who knows? I have seen it. Of course you have. I'm going to leave it there. Oh, that's ominous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to... Do you know what? I'm going to leave it to your judgment. I've seen it once I had mixed feelings at the time. It must be a year or two at least since I saw it, because it's a fairly recent one again. So there's been other films that we've talked about where I've gone back and I've watched it a second time when I've been, do you know what? I think maybe I was too harsh on it the first time. So yeah, let's go back. Let's give it a second watch. If I remember correctly, it's some more Johnny Knoxville. So two Johnny Knoxville films in a row. (laughs) All I'm thinking is dig my grave right now. I will dive in. All right, that's that. Something to look forward to. If you say so. (laughs) All right, so that's pretty much it. Uh, So if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the socials on Twitter and Instagram at PodActionHero. You could leave us a five-star review, no less, please, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And uh, we're also on Letterboxd at PodActionHero. I've been Gavin. I've been Jamie. And we will speak to you again next time. 